The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Hello. A man's destiny is never clear. One can search one's whole life for a purpose, and yet still find it in the most unlikely place, and the most incredible circumstances. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and writer, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. This evening's presentation is John Carter, the 2012 science fantasy adventure based on the books by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And my guest, live via wireless from California, is modern cinematic neophyte and fellow podcaster, Tilt Horizon. Hello, Tilt. Hello, Jeremy. Uh, now, we've been uh, off air, so I've taken the opportunity to go on my holidays. I went up into the mountains where I ate somebody, and then I went on a cruise ship, and I was threatened by Freddie Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Mr. Horatio Nibble. <laughs> All the best people have been threatened by Freddie Jones. Uh, And then I went to Mars with my mind. Yes. I really hope that I properly understand the purpose of this podcast. I've got a a slight concern that I might have misunderstood it. Well, it was you who suggested that we watch John Carter. I follow movie news, so I was aware of it while it was being made. And I was aware that... Disney was spending an awful lot of money on something that seemed like a bit of a gamble. And then it came out and the gamble didn't pay off because it got quite uninterested reviews and it bombed everywhere except Russia. And I saw it on the opening weekend and I thought, this film is like a tall glass of nothing. But I hear that uh, for you, it has a bit more of a personal meaning. It does. Now, watching it again, I thought, am I going to have to justify every single theme, every arguable point? Is Jeremy going to think I'm a massive fascist? Oh, don't worry. I already think you're a fascist. Oh, that's fine. Just a normal one, you know, just the, just the normal size armband. So the reason I saw this film, it's, it's unusual for me to pick a film mid this century. And the reason I saw this film goes to my late father-in-law. For the last few years of his life, he was in a wheelchair, which meant that he couldn't go to the cinema whenever he felt like it. So generally, his children or his grandchildren would take him to see the latest blockbuster. But then there were those films where nobody wanted to see them. And that's where I came in. I've actually been in the cinema when Battleship was on the screen. I I, I make that distinct from I've actually seen Battleship. He wanted to see Battleship. It was occurring while you were present, but you weren't directing your senses towards it. Yeah, I had no problem taking him to see Battleship, but I also went uh, with my MP3 player loaded with desert island discs. (laughs) So while Battleship is on the screen, I'm listening to Alvar Liddell and Les Dawson (laughs) picking favorite records. 
my father-in-law liked anything that was science fiction. He's the only person I've heard of who thought that Battlefield Earth was a good film. It's a very entertaining film. Not for the same reason that your father-in-law might have thought, but... <laughs> so I remember before John Carter came out, there were posters that just said, John Carter. Or even before that, there was a poster that just said, JCM 2012. I thought, this is a problem. They're expecting us to gasp at the mere mention of the name. You said that Disney spent a lot of money, and they did. They spent a lot of money making it. I don't think they spent any money marketing it. There were no John Carter Mars burgers in any of the fast food chains. I don't think there were any action figures. That's something that uh, I noticed in my research, that there was very little merchandising connected with the movie, which is very odd for what was supposed to be a huge blockbuster. There was nothing in the way of tie-ins. But the actual marketing budget was spent on these huge billboards everywhere that just had the poster and the name of the movie, which means almost nothing to anybody because John Carter is such a boring, generic name. I don't know if it was an oversight by the director. I think he had a bit more say than normal in the marketing. He had a very big say I don't say know in if the he marketing. thought that the name, as plain as it is, might have the same cachet as James Bond. James Bond is a boring, flat name, but we know it. We know what it means. Well, there was a a story about how they actually arrived at the name because the yes. um, I should say that it was actually the the film came out in the centenary of its first publication in 1912. It was, I believe, Edgar Rice Burroughs' first book, and it was originally titled uh, "Under the Moons of Mars." And when it was published in novel form, it was renamed "A Princess of Mars," and the books as a whole are known as the Barsoom series. But the title of the movie was intended to be John Carter of Mars. That's a good title because you're mixing a boring, normal name with space. I think a princess of Mars was immediately struck down because somebody had said princess will turn off males. And they cut Mars out of it because some idiot on a marketing board, noted that no film with the word Mars in the title had ever been a huge hit. Had Mars Needs Moms just bombed? Yes, and that closed an entire animation studio. It took uh, the remake of Yellow Submarine with it, didn't it? It did, yeah. The funny thing is that, um, that uh, was it Imageworks, that studio, because that was owned by Robert Zemeckis. And there's a story that goes back to Back to the Future that production on that was going very well but there was a memo sent from the studio head saying we've looked at the data and no movie with the word future in the title has ever been a hit so i want to change it to spaceman from pluto <laughs> and robert zemeckis being a bit of a novice didn't know what to do about this because he thought this was obviously a terrible idea he took it to steven spielberg the executive producer and spielberg said i'll take care of this and he wrote back to the head of the studio and says Oh, that uh, joke memo you sent. Oh, it was absolutely hilarious. We've been working so hard here making this movie that it all just gave us such a big laugh. And, oh, it's, it's, really, it's really helped over here. And they never heard another word about it. <laughs> but in the name of this idiotic nonsense about, 
oh, no, f- no film with this word in the title's been a huge hit, which is just obvious bollocks. We get a film called John Carter with nothing else on the poster apart from a man in the desert, and we're expected to infer from that what this film's supposed to be about or why we should go and see it. And I think that's the level of marketing genius we're dealing with, and that's what killed the film Stone Dead at the box office. Yes. I don't think it was anything to do with its intrinsic qualities, because some right old toot does very well out there. Maybe that's me being judgmental. Well, looking at some of the films that have been successful over this summer, marketing has triumphed over actual quality. It's just Avatar, though, isn't it? Why didn't they keep pressing that button? (laughs) This is 19th century Avatar. There was a recut trailer that I remember seeing a long time ago that essentially presented the movie as, ah, this is where it all started. This is the birth of science fiction. And tried to present it as the ur-text. And I'm not sure if that would have attracted as many or attracted more film goes but it was at least it had a narrative to what it was selling there was a central idea in the marketing rather than here is some action here is a man with a beard in the desert here are some alien people and just a bundle of nothing while playing led zeppelin over the top which was andrew stanton's idea and everyone thought it was terrible and it is so i was looking at some reviews from Edgar Rice Burroughs fans and a lot of those were just like oh thank god this is the movie I've been waiting for oh that's a shame I have no background with this material myself I was hoping actually that you'd read it because I haven't and I try, if, if I'm covering a, a movie that's based on a book I try and read the book first but unfortunately I got a bit jumbled up when, we're, when we were supposed to be recording this and I haven't had time I thought last time <laughs> I was brought on as expert in the saint I thought this time I'll just stumble around in the dark well, that's going to make two of us. <laughs> that's fine. I, I did a little bit, uh, just a little bit of reading, but I thought, I don't want to do too much. I don't want to lose time. I just don't want to wake up and find the entire day has gone on a wiki walk. The thing I was trying to establish and completely failed to do was what the situation was with his first wife. Yes, yeah, some of that appears to have been added in post-production as well. All the footage of um, the flashbacks of Carter's wife and child was all added in post-production because they realised that it was incredibly vague and not addressed properly in the course of the movie and that it's probably a good idea to give the main character in the film some depth so that we actually care about whether or not he dies. Because I just kind of looked at Wikipedia pages and there doesn't seem to be any mention of a first wife. No, I think it's probably just a, a generic screenwriting thing. So we see a big red planet to begin with, and a voiceover comes in. It was on the planet Scar... No, hang on. Well, it does start with the Disney logo, but it's been tinted red so that it looks like that the Cinderella's castle is actually the devil's fortress in hell, which is not a good way to start a family movie. I'll have to wait for a really good sunset here in Orange County, and make my way over to Disneyland and see if at any point Cinderella's castle looks like the Devil's Fortress in Hell. I mean, Tomorrowland is the Devil's Fortress in Hell. Tomorrowland stinks, but... <laughs> well, it's probably the uh, the old people mover. I've spent more hours on Pirates of the Caribbean The Rider than I have ever watching the movies. 
How many of the movies have you seen? Two. That's one too many. It could well be two too many. Did you see the first one? I saw the first one. That's the good and one. And then I saw the one with Ian McShane. <laughs> yeah, well, you were spared part of the third one, which came up in a recent Cinema Limbo conversation, and uh, it's the only Disney movie to start with a child being executed. <laughs> so far. So far, yeah. I mean, who knows about Tron 3? <laughs> but as you say, the movie proper starts with uh, the planet Mars and a voiceover by somebody and then there's yes some that confused me i've watched this movie three times in the last couple of days and i still haven't quite worked out who's saying that i think it's uh willem dafoe as tars tarkas but uh, then there is there is a, a, a an amount of action there is some sky flying hovercraft things and then uh a, a bunch of baldos appear and um, they give Dominic West some magic string that runs all the way up his arm. And um, no one has any idea what's going on. Because that's not how you start a movie. I- I'm fine with that. I trust them to-, to eventually tell us. Any complaints I have about this movie does does not start with the magic string. Well, no, I'm taking the mickey a bit, but I'm more concerned about the fact that it starts three or four times because you have the scene on Mars and then you have the scene in uh, New York in the 1880s where John Carter sends a telegram summoning his nephew and then you have another introduction of Ned, the nephew, appearing at his mansion to be told that he's dead but he has to read through his journal. And then the movie flashbacks to the 1860s, and it starts again in the Old West, where he's digging a hole in the ground looking for gold, and then he goes and starts a fight in a a general store. And we're about 15 minutes into the movie, and nothing's happened. We've just been introduced to a series of nested flashbacks, like it's a Christopher Nolan Ladybird book. (laughs) What, What would you have done to solve that? I would have cut off the first three starts and I would have started with him in the Old West because that's the part what you actually need. You don't need the beginning bit on Mars. You don't need all the stuff of him turning up. You can just have voiceover and then dovetail that back at the end where the voiceover is Ned reading the journal. So you say, ah, that's where the voiceover is coming from. You don't need all that extra stuff. And that voiceover at the beginning, Mars, you think you know Mars. You don't know Mars, boy. I I paraphrase. <laughs> that could have been John Carter speaking to Ned rather than somebody we're rather unaware of. And even after watching the movie a few times, still not entirely sure who it is. I guess the problem with the movie is that um, the director, Andrew Stanton, this was his passion project. And it was also his first live action film. He had come over from Pixar where he directed Finding Nemo and Wally back-to-back, both of them obviously giant hits, hugely acclaimed, modern classics. And I think they're both beautiful movies. And based on the success of those, he was essentially given carte blanche with this, but he decided he was going to make it the Pixar way, which is changing stuff and redrafting as you're actually making it. 
And I think that it's a lot easier to do that in an, an animation project than you can in a live action project. And the result is the script is sort of a bit slapped together. It feels like it's like several page ones have been shot and edited together. And there are bits that seem to be missing, like most of the characters having any depth or what the villain's motivation is, or most of Dominic West's scenes because he's barely in the movie, despite apparently being the villain. Passion projects, do you think they're always doomed? You think there always should be somebody sitting on his left hand saying, I know you love it, but drop it. Drop that bit. This, I, I know it's a classic moment in the book, but you really don't need this right now. Well, it depends. I mean, if it's if the passion project is an adaptation of a source text, the risk is that they're just going to translate it straight from the page onto the screen. And that is how you make a disaster. If it's an original idea that they've had, then chances are that it's not going to be as serious a problem. I mean, it seems more like the exception than the rule, but Inception was a passion project for Christopher Nolan. He'd been working on it for 10 years. Christopher Nolan's capable of passion. I know, it's it's incredible, isn't it? I, I saw him smile once. Oh. But he really, really wants to do this movie, and he'd been working on it for years. It originally started out as a horror movie, and then as he became more powerful in Hollywood, he was able to expand the scope of it a lot more until it became this giant thing that could have sunk his career if it had gone wrong. But it wound up being a massive hit, and even though I don't think it's that brilliant a script it really shows off his skill as a filmmaker but i think even then he's got someone sitting on his shoulder and i think it's his wife who's his producer not just like she's there hanging around on the set with her curlers and rolling pin played by terry jones <laughs> so we right we've had a fight on mars and some time lords have given <laughs> dominic west some silly string that kills things that's blue Oh, everyone's got complicated names as well. Now, I've, I've hardly written any of them down. So, um, Dominic West is Sab Fan, I think, and he's the Jeddak of the, the moving city of Zodonga. And Mark Strong plays King of the Baldos, and he's called Matai Shang. Is that right? That's right, yes. Right. And um, then we have, on Earth, Brian Cranston turns up, and enlists Carter to um, put down the Red Man, ironically enough. So word on the street is you're one of those uh, social justice warriors we've been hearing about. Because <laughs> yeah, if that's true, we're going to wa- wear out the word problematic. I think we are. Yeah, I'm actually having a shirt made up. Um, it's uh, I'm, I'm consider myself in a privileged position being white, straight, and male in that I can argue with people on Twitter and they can't say anything back to me because they've got nothing to pick on because it's just like looking in a mirror for them, except a bizarro mirror where the person on the other side isn't a cunt. <laughs> I thought your mother listened to these podcasts. I don't think she's that concerned. I think okay, she's me now. <laughs> That'll be bleeped, don't worry. <laughs> right. One of the things I like about this movie is how little it changes in some ways, even though you could understand that if they wanted to, they would have. How do you mean? He's a confederate. Yes. And traditionally, was it Buster Keaton said about the general, about how he, you know, he wouldn't have been able to make the film 
if the central character had been a unionist wouldn't wouldn't have sold wouldn't have worked had to be a rebel right I, I, I'm curious about the relationship. I guess it was partially metabolizing what had happened and the whole concept of the lost cause and maybe allowing them to ignore what was happening there and then. Still happening now. A little bit of politics. There's one bit where they try, I think, to offset it. Uh, when he's been captured by... Breaking Bad, forget his name. General, uh, Colonel Powell. And he says, whatever it is you think I owe you, our country, or any other beloved cause. I think that's a line put in saying, uh, yeah, the Civil War actually disgusted him, the whole thing, so don't think that he's a Southern rebel through and through. Well, speaking of recent uh, blockbuster would-be blockbuster movies that have had former Confederate soldiers as major characters. I saw Jonah Hex a little while ago. And um, uh, absolute garbage though that movie is, it did come up with quite uh, an easy way around the whole problem. Also, his uh, uh, family gets burned to death as well. Um, he joined the Confederates, not because he's racist or anything, he just doesn't like people pushing him around. Which kind of negates the whole thing about the confederates pushing black people around but then you know he gets his face messed up so well i've perfect. watched ken burns film and th there were a number of people who just saw that their first loyalty was to their state and not to their nation so you you can put that in there well that seems fair enough but i think it's probably much more nuanced a subject than we have the space to get into or I have the knowledge to discuss because I've never seen a Ken Burns film and they seem to be the uh, first port of call for American history Should we talk about his voice? Taylor Kitsch's voice as yes. John Carter of Earth um, There was a Clive James show, one of his ITV shows many, many, many years ago where he played this advert for some sort of, I don't know if it was a recording it played, some sort of chat line, some sort of voice on the other end, adult enjoyment line. And the advert, it was live action, this guy's there standing in his tuxedo, and he talks like this, We're on the side of the hill, with the beautiful city lights behind us. And for some reason, he reminded me of that advert. Wasn't that a famous voiceover actor who um, would, would always get all the best radio commercial gigs in London? I remember hearing about that. Um, and he always wore black leather jacket and dark glasses. Sounds like Tommy Vance to me. But... Lovely foaming pint of nut brown ale. Well, Taylor Kitsch is in fact Canadian. So he's clearly doing a voice to a certain extent anyway. But I always got the sense through the movie that he's playing the part of a leading man rather than being a leading man. He's doing an impersonation of someone. Yeah, apparently in the book, Carter's described as having the manners of a southern gentleman. 
they've clearly decided machismo is more the way to go. So he should have been like um, Clark Gable, but but crossed with Johnny Weissmuller. That's an make excellent sure you, description. But make sure you get it the right way around. And also people I've actually heard of, so... <laughs> people from the past. There's a there's an Austrian pop song. <laughs> this is a promising sentence. There's an Austrian pop song that was, um, I remember, from the 80s that had the singer describing himself romantically as a mixture of Albert Einstein and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Unfortunately, he had Schwarzenegger's brains and Einstein's looks. <laughs> so you don't want to you don't want to get that wrong. Um, while Carter has escaped from the uh, the Union soldiers, having nicked uh, General Walter White's horse, they meet up with uh, some uh, Native Americans, and then suddenly get into a fight with them. Not caused by John Carter. John Carter speaks the language. It's caused by some hothead in the army letting off a shot. Not even under orders. They're really trying to defuse the blame for the whole situation. Yeah. But it, it turns into a firefight, and um, uh, General uh, Malcolm's dad is uh, hit, and they conceal themselves in a cave, which turns out to be the cave of gold that he's been looking for the whole time. That was lucky, wasn't it? Oh, and admittedly, he he was in the area looking for it, so it's not like he'd heard tell of it once and didn't know where it was and then just stumbled upon it. He had stumbled upon it in the area he was looking for it, so I'm, I will let that. I'll give that a pass. Well, what's what's even more of a coincidence is that suddenly another of these bald fellas appears and uh, tries to stab Carter in the back. So Carpenter shoots him in the chest and steals his jewellery. I think the bald fellas are actually from a subsequent novel. And it's a bit of a change bringing them in to this story. And I think it confuses things. Because the first thing, well, the, the first thing we learn about them is that they can hand out laser blasting silly string to whoever they wish. But then another thing we learn is that they're on Earth. That's, what, what are they doing on Earth? Well, they do explain later on that they're kind of immortal and they go around controlling civilizations and making sure that the right people are in charge. And I think the inference is that they're going to start doing that on Earth. So it gives you someone to blame for Grover Cleveland. thing is, Earth seems more ripe for the picking than Mars. We don't have walking cities on Earth at that time. I think 19th century Earth seems a hell of a lot more of an easy take. I guess maybe it's, you know, you, you take out the big threat first. Well, Mars Once we dominate to... the technologically civilized, the technologically advanced Martians, then we can go after the Earthmen and their growly voices. And their ships that run on water. Imagine that. But, um,. Mars is supposed to be on the brink of uh, extinction, which I think is mentioned twice, and then we don't hear any mention of it or relevance of it later on either. Actually, there is one thing, I suppose, keeping them away from Earth. You can take one out with a 19th century handgun. 
Yeah, it turns out they're Bang, immortal. dead! <laughs> they're immortal, but they're not invulnerable, because you can just shoot one in the chest, and he goes down like a sack of potatoes. Well, I, I'm going to... I, I have to apologise, because I know how much of a drag it can be when people start dragging Doctor Who into things, but these bald-headed white guys, they are very much Malcolm Hawke's Time Lords, I think, which is, we can live forever, barring accidents. <laughs> well, he fell on a bullet. Carter grabs his flashing medallion, and then, whoosh! Suddenly, he's in the desert. And there is no change whatsoever in the way the movie is shot, because he's still in the desert, as he has been all the way through the movie so far. Yeah, this thing needs regrading at some point. The desert shouldn't look um, yellow on Mars. It should look red. Because that's what... I mean, the movie isn't scientifically accurate. So you don't need to worry about, oh, the desert needs to be the right colour. No, just just put it, make it a bit red. And then it'll look different from Arizona, which is where the first part's set. But at first he thinks that, oh, I'm still on Earth. So he gets up and then he starts leaping about. Because um, some for some reason there's low gravity or something. So every time he takes a step, he, he, he jumps through the air. As if he's Superman. Exactly, completely nicked by Siegel. Because Superman couldn't fly until about 1941, wasn't it? The Fleischer cartoons was, was what made him fly, and that's because they were just sick of drawing the jumping. He, yeah, he could leap tall buildings in a single bound, and that's what Carter can do. For the exact same reason, because he came from a place with heavier gravity than Earth. Isn't it because he um, he came from a planet with a red sun and Earth has a yellow sun? Um, that's what gives him some of his other powers. But the first issue of Superman explains Superman in terms of an ant. And <laughs> uh, you know what? I think they might actually have whatever explanation comes to hand every time they have to explain his powers. Oh, that's a pity. I like. But there are some versions that uh, say it's it's also because Krypton had this really horrific gravity. But um, Carter's sort of jumping and leaping. I think it's supposed to be funny. I'm watching it right now. I have it on the TV. I'm. I doubt you'll find it distracting. It's that his reactions aren't sufficiently goggling. He needs to be more amazed or baffled at what's happening. Instead, it's, oh, this is annoying. With the rubber boots that I knew I was wearing or something like that. I don't know in some ways that that's <laughs> just looking at the look on his face. That's possibly a more realistic reaction. Just, oh, what now? I, you know, th there is always that possibility that if one suddenly became able to fly or jump 20 feet in the air, there are certain people, certain temperaments who just go, oh, now this, ugh. But the movie is, is trading in a, a heightened fantasy world, and I think that it needs to be consistent with that. It needs to be a bit more like you know, Flash Gordon without the camp. So it has that... The thing, the thing that makes it hard for me to like the movie is Carter is such a flat, dull character. He has very little depth. He has this bolted-on backstory about a dead family, which, is, as you say, isn't in the books. He doesn't have any kind of 
personality trait apart from that, apart from being grumpy and not liking people pushing him around. And that's not a character. That's that's a Mr. Men person. <laughs> and much as we would all like to see um, Edgar Rice Burroughs Mr. Men with, you know, Mr. Strong in the jungle, Mr. Six Arms fighting a, a white ape and um, Mr. Bald wearing a big robe. Little Miss doesn't wear many clothes. Yeah, Little Miss doesn't star in any other movies. It's just taking it's taking itself too seriously, and I think it's too reverential towards the original text, that it's this sacred work that can't be improved upon apart from, like you know because as they had to sort of rewrite it because they realized bits of it didn't work they needed to actually just keep get away from that original completely and figure out what the spine of the whole thing is supposed to be what's the movie about is it the hero's journey he doesn't change very much he goes from not wanting to help people to helping people but doesn't actually develop as a character no one actually changes or develops over the course of the movie, so there's no source of audience investment. I think I've realised why I do like this film. Because of this? Because it hasn't been poured into that mould. It might be something of an amorphous blob, but having seen, on the rare occasions I do, having seen modern blockbusters and action films keep hitting the same beats god damn the hero's journey i know to hell with the hero's journey but the thing is if if anything was going to symbolize the hero's journey it should be this because this is supposed to be the original sci-fi novel but if your characters aren't going to have any depth they're not going to develop in any way there's very little that can get you involved in the story and get you to care about what you're watching and I think that's the weak thing is this central performance. I think a slightly different performance, you wouldn't have actually needed as much backstory. I am interested in characters who are ciphers, but you don't really notice it. If he'd had a bit more um, energy, perhaps, or animation in his performance, that might have made up If you'd made him a southern gentleman. Right, make him muscular and handsome but give him just that slight Oliver Hardy quality or <laughs> just give him courtly manners but it's, yeah so then then he becomes an archetype so we have a a figure that we can recognize and we can kind of latch onto that that gives us that gives the audience something to work with and i think a twinkle in his eye you could actually remove his first wife <laughs> and a, a, no, a good actor could give you the sense that, yeah, he's he's had some interesting experiences here. I don't need to know what they are. Yeah, it's just a, a, certain, sh- a certain shadiness over the brow at certain times. And you can say, oh, this man has a past. He, he's not going to talk. He's not going to talk about it, but we know it's there. But there is a lot of nice accidental show don't tell, even though what they're showing doesn't amount to much. Um, the fact that he doesn't change throughout much throughout the movie uh, me- means we don't really have this punching you on the nose 
And this was John Carter's emotional journey. Pow. So I think that it's it, it's accidental, but it just misses out a few things that you would expect from a 21st century fantasy action film. And I respond to that. Well, that's the thing that I respond to them to these these points actually being there. You're respond you're responding to their absence because it's going in a different direction to the norm. But I prefer it if I, I like not entirely this, knowing this... where I'm going. Oh, me too. It's but... it's one of the reasons I, I I do like a lot of old films because they haven't actually written the rules yet, and sometimes they just take a bizarre turn without knowing that's what they're doing. A little like, as you were saying earlier, early Doctor Who, because they didn't really know what his character was supposed to be. So if three episodes in, he looks like he's about to murder someone in cold blood, they can get away with that because he's not a hero yet. And also, he's William Hartnell. You can't stay mad. <laughs> well, Carter's leaping about and uh, he discovers a big tank full of monster eggs. That's really there to give us an idea of what the green Martians are like, because the whole thing is some of them haven't hatched. Bang, 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 bang. We kill them. Because so it's, it's, it's just like, yeah, just get a quick. Though there is that nice bit that there is Tau, Tarkus, Taz, Tarta, Taz, 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 the boy who lost his life. Willem Dafoe, he's the chief. And there's this thing about some of them haven't hatched, and it's the other guy, the guy with the missing tusk. He goes, they are weak. So it's like, we, right there, it, it only really noticeable on subsequent watchings. is We've already seen, the order didn't actually come from the chief. No, it's from the uh, deformed villain character yes. who's got something wrong who's got like a, a scar or a squint or funny eyes or a missing tusk at least with the missing tusk it's a sense that it, he might have brought that on himself at least that's you know, scars and missing tusks at least you know maybe he just he just can't he just needs to take more water with it just keeps getting him fights <laughs> over the smallest thing yeah, he's, he stole some of the uh, magic translation milk. I think they remade his favourite film, but with all women instead of men. <laughs> what, the Andromeda strain? <laughs> Mars needs dads. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, another thing um, they don't tell us in this film, but it's apparently say, all the Martian races lay eggs. Right. Even the red Martians. Even the apparently compatible human Martians. Yes. I see. Still, it's like he pops up back home before his wedding night then, isn't it? Be like, um, it's like in Futurama when Fry marries a mermaid and then realises how they're going to have sex and he has to make a run for it, and he screams, oh, why couldn't she be the other kind of mermaid with the fish part <laughs> at the top and the lady part at the bottom? <laughs> That's a very weird detail to have, though, that they all lay eggs. Because I'm not sure... Well, complaining it doesn't make biological sense is a bit rich, because none of this makes any scientific sense at all anyway. 
So the Red Martian Princess. There's a thing I like and there's a thing I don't like here. Do tell. I actually like her performance. She's far she's far from terrible. But she ain't red enough. They've made her too visually compatible. And of course, they have a whacking great problem here. Which is if you have this exotic slightly savage I know the 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 Red Martians of Helium the city are meant to be a little bit more noble but if you've got this slightly exotic slightly savage race you're going to have to go for white actors because if you just cast them all from any other ethnic group it's going to have a weird undertone yes I see your point but then the problem you have is they're all white and she's white she's got tan so we're kind of losing a certain sense of Carter as an outsider. Yes, as far as I can recall, there aren't any non-white actors in the movie. Obviously, there are some green characters, but uh, they're all played by white actors as well. One thing I like about this better than Avatar. <laughs> That's. I was going to say just one. Because this is a this is a much better movie than Avatar. The one relevant right now is in Avatar. He's the all American boy who goes to the exotic civilization and outstrips them. He's more like them than they are. After a few lessons, this culture only takes a few days to learn. John Carter is still weird on Mars. He's learned it because he has powers that they don't have, but he is not more Martian than the Martians. No, that's very true. He, uh... Yeah, it's a bit more respectful, I think. I mean, Avatar, I think, in retrospect, is a pretty dreadful movie. And this, at least, as well as being 40 minutes shorter has a sense of perspective that it's just trying to tell a ripping adventure story rather than illuminate some deep truth about humanity with uh, James Cameron's customary light touch. An optimium. <laughs> yeah, I think he saw that written down and then didn't read the rest of the article. <laughs> because did you know that unobtainium was already a scientific term? No, but it doesn't surprise, but it just feels like, it's like, right, we'll, we'll call it unobtainium, and then, when we get to the final draft, we'll think of a really great name for, it's a, it's a bit like um, the first episode of TVS police drama, Cat's Eyes, <laughs> in which there is some sort of scientific espionage thing, and the boss just happens to drop the the nickname for this device is the MacGuffin, and so for the for the rest of the thing, the game talking about getting the MacGuffin. It's like, yeah, that's that's an error. <laughs> <laughs> that's almost like, uh, yeah, we we actually shot the we didn't make this in order, and we shot the last few scenes uh, using the draft. <laughs> so can we put a scene in earlier? <laughs> Which he explains why they keep saying get the MacGuffin. 
Is this why they burnt their I mentioned a the defunct ITV franchise while talking about a Disney movie from the 21st century. I win. A race in which I am admittedly the only competitor. Well, last week I recorded an episode where I talk about um, Rita Fusion. So. <laughs> oh, great. Marvellous. <laughs> not really, not really. Oh, that's a shame. And uh, classics from Westwood. Oh, can, can, I, can I just mention um, Kieran Hines' downturned mouth? <laughs> yes. He, does, he doesn't do much in this film, does he? But he does turn his mouth down a lot. Those corners of his mouth never go above a certain point. He has that peculiar face where he always looks like a mixture of someone who's angry, disappointed, and the result of an unsatisfactory statue. (laughs) And he's like that in everything. I want to see him in a comedy. I want to see him in a Woody Allen film where he gets some real laughs with his strange fish-faced grimace. I'm going to have to watch that version of Jane Eyre again. Oh, does he play Jane Eyre? That sounds great. (laughs) Where are we? So, yes, we, we meet our Martian princess. And I I like her, and I like some of the performance decisions she takes, because she's given two fairly cliched roles wrapped into one. As per Burroughs, she's a damsel in distress. And in the books, uh, she's naked most of the time. She just wears jewellery. Right, okay. Yeah. As per Hollywood, of course, they'd have to... Oh, no, she's got to get in fights. Got to show that she's... She's feisty, and... She's not feisty. Not especially, She's just very good at fighting. And not panicked by it. But... Because feisty generally translates into unpleasant. It's one of those meaningless words that keeps turning up in character descriptions instead of actual personality traits. Um, Clara Oswald in Doctor Who was repeatedly described as feisty and sassy. Neither of those words mean anything. And they were, like like the MacGuffin in Cat's Eyes, they were placeholders for an actual character. At the very least, what's her name again? The Martian princess, Deja... Deja Thoris. Deja Thoris. Uh, I mean, she's introduced rehearsing a speech to give to her father about this scientific breakthrough. It's such a cliche, isn't it? It is, but it does establish... Oh, no, she is intelligent. She has all this scientific knowledge that she's garnered. That's been added. Well, it's no bad thing, then, because it shows that she's not just decorative. But yeah, again, that that's actually a nice little bit. They could have just said good at fighting and left it there. But the first time we see her, we see her using her brain. Could have been worse. You could have been a Ghostbuster. I haven't seen any of the films. Oh, you should start with the new one. It's the best one. I thought I'd start with the Larry Storch, Forrest Tucker television. 
Forrest Tucker, Forrest Whitaker, one of those guys. Which is which? I always get those confused. Uh, Forrest Whitaker's the one who's black. Right, okay, so it's Forrest Tucker. Good. <laughs> I think he's also the one who's alive. There was an animated version of the live-action series, which I remember watching when I was living in Germany. And it was extremely confusing. Yeah, they made a bit of a boo-boo their filmation. When they reached their settlement, they should have just said, we'll just turn over the rights to make the animated version of the movie to us. Yeah. And didn't. Well, the, the real Ghostbusters, though, in terms of uh, picture, you know, animation quality is far and ahead better than um, the other one. Well, it's not made by filmation. Correct. Where they had a time-travelling car and the villain was a giant robot Grim Reaper who lived in a cathedral in the future. In space. I think that's what, looks, I think that's what the inside of Dan Aykroyd's head looks like. I'm now farther into the film on the television than I am talking. So, Deja Thoris has worked out what the bad guys are using. They're using the ninth ray. Yes. Uh, which, in contrast to... Uh, it's sort of demonstrated that it's in, co in contrast to Mars itself, because the ninth ray is blue. I, I Actually, I, I like the use of colour all the way through the movie. So you have the red planet, you have the yellow desert of Earth, you have the red and inverted commas Martians who are the what the humans who lay eggs through their bums or something. You've got the green Tharks, the silver Baldos, and the blue Ninth Ray. So it's a nice bold, bright primary colours layout. I think it's it's one of the most, most successful elements of the movie, just the way they use colour, because it's just straightforward <laughs> and doesn't hammer you over the head with it in the way that it has to do all the mythology and backstory in order to get on with the, the actual storyline of the movie because it's so convoluted. This is just nice and clear and it's nicely delineated. You have the, and you have the white apes. Everything is just nicely visually distinct in a way that's easy to grab onto. It's, sort of sh it's almost like show, don't tell, except they're not really telling you anything, just making it easier for you to watch. Meanwhile, back with the Green Martians, their chief has got John Carter strapped to the back of his horse because John Carter's been shot in the bomb accidentally and has decided to bring this jumping creature back to his people and also the hatchlings, the monsters that came out of eggs and it's there that we meet Sola the little Martian girl that could yes now Sola is the one who's covered in brands isn't she yes that's not properly explained well it is later on so the idea is I think that every time you break one of the Thark laws you get a brand and once your body is covered in them and there aren't room for any more they kill you so she must have broken an awful lot of laws because she's only got room for one more. I don't think they make it too clear, but she's really breaking a law just by existing. I did not get that at all. 
it's not particularly it is stated but it's not particularly well handled the whole thing that the Jeddak is her father is actually it's a big shameful secret yeah I didn't realize that was supposed to be a secret I just thought it was obvious no because you're not meant to have fathers you're not meant to have families it's the whole thing. The hatchlings get taken out, incubated somewhere, brought back and just given to anybody who can fight over our babies. And you look you look after it. Well, actually, even then, the hatchlings are then taken off to a cave and covered in talcum powder. But you're not meant to really know whose lineage is who. It's You just belong... The family is the horde, the Tharks. And there's this, there's this brief mention about how Solar's mother hid the egg and hatched it herself and presumably told the chief, uh, by the way, that's yours. So they are unique in Thark society. So that, that explains that, but I don't remember any of that coming up in the movie. Maybe I was distracted by... A kitten. There's just that bit where John Carter says to... I've forgotten his name, but I know he's the chief. Jedi, the Jeddak of the Tharks. Tars Tarkas. Tars Tarkas. And he says, she's your daughter. And he's furious. And it's like, who told you? So it's clearly something that's not meant to be out there. And that's then when he mentions. But he doesn't quite make it clear that that is really forbidden... But because she's had a slightly different upbringing, it makes her more emotional. It makes her... So that's why she's probably broken so many rules. She's probably given comfort to people that the Tharks have decreed should die. She's she's done human-type things. Yes, yeah, she's uh, becoming more civilized, like the white man. <laughs> and she's played by Samantha Morton, which is a very difficult concept for me to get my head around is it just it's all vo- just voiceover and cgi there's no motion capture is there there's no sense of performances coming through the cgi tharks there was um facial tracking oh, used, okay. and the actors were on set and on location uh wearing stilts so they were they were opposite they were acting opposite um taylor kitsch and, and each other and providing eye lines and 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 voiceover and that kind of thing so they then it's not just them in a in a booth somewhere. It was a it is essentially a proper performance. I didn't notice in a nice way. I just thought their animation was that good. The animation is very good. The visual effects throughout the movie are very well realized. And they frankly they really should be, given the um, Stanton's pedigree. Again, accidentally stepping outside of Hollywood cliches, it's nice to have a subplot about a father and a daughter. After fathers and sons being the thing yes. for much of the sort of last quarter of the 20th century and into this century. Have you seen Green Lantern? Yes, as long as you don't ask me any more questions, because there's not that much I can remember about it. All right, because that is a movie that's driven entirely by father-son relationships to the point where that becomes hilarious. Because every single character in the movie has a troubled relationship with their father. Every I'm mainly thinking one, about every single one. Charlie of the Chocolate Factory. 
Tim Burton style oh, sinking under the God. weight of its own daddy issues. But I'm not the world's biggest Tim Burton fan, so... So Carter is now being looked after in the baby cave. Uh, he gets talc thrown all over him, and then he gets fed the Martian translation milk. Because up until this point, he hasn't understood a word anyone's saying, and it's all been subtitled. I was reminded of the Australian film Dot and the Kangaroo, where Dot is given some wood to chew on that means she can understand the animals. <laughs> is it a special That's kind really of my word? problem, though. <laughs> well, it reminded me of uh, the Babelfish, of having to, uh, in some way, ingest or insert into your body this specific alien organic material, and then you'll be able to understand all the language. So Mars must be completely monolingual, and maybe... That, okay, here's, here's the thing. If, if he's understanding everything that's being said... Surely he wouldn't hear them say Barsoom. Surely he'd hear them say Mars. And Dota Sojat, my right arms. Wouldn't he hear that as, he shall be my right arms, my right arms. Or maybe Dota Sojat is like some uh, archaic term, so he would hear that as. I think it also uh, involves maybe the intent of the words and proper nouns. Because they still call him Virginia. That's that's the the one part of the movie that I did find quite funny all the way through is when he's first introducing himself to Tars Tarkas. He says, "Captain John Carter, Virginia." Ah, Virginia. So for the rest of the movie, all the Tharks call him Virginia. Even in the huge final battle sequence, they still call him that. And again, it's nicely undercutting the what could have been pompous seriousness so it's yeah it, it it lifts the movie a bit above just rote sci-fi adventure because i mean actually at the same time this was being um prepped the asylum which specializes in mockbusters uh churned out their own version of a princess of mars with uh antonio sabato jr uh, last seen at the Republican National Convention as John Carter and uh, Tracy Lords of um, Obscene Publications fame as uh, Deja uh, Thoris. Yeah. Thoris. I, I did watch the trailer for that one. Does it look as bad as I imagine? Yes. <laughs> Was it filmed on a golf course? Because I get the impression that it probably would have been. No, they've actually found a little bit of desert somewhere. But the Tharks are just people with Thark masks that they've got from a Halloween store. <laughs> Does it have Deja's father pulling a weird downturned mouth face? Well, I say trailer. It was really just like the scene of the Tharks getting John Carter. Ah. Uh, can they afford a horse? I didn't see one. <laughs> well, speaking of amusing animals, of course, we have the other funny, weird alien, which is Wooler the amusing dog monster, and my favourite character in the movie. He's, he's a useful little plot device. Yes. He's uh, he's rather likeable. He's just he's basically a six-legged dog with a huge mouth, but who acts like a little puppy. And he runs at about 400 miles an hour. 
Yeah, and he runs super fast because he's got six legs, even though he's big and fat. Because it's space. So uh, while we're having the whole situation with John Carter, prisoner of the Fox, and there's all this talk about whether he should jump and what his role will be in their society, the bad red Martians attack from the sky. The Zodongans. Dominic yeah. West and his Time Lord Masters. Uh, yeah, uh, Dominic West, uh, Sab Fan, and uh, Matai Shang, and uh, all of, all of the other gangs. You know, Dozy Beaky McIntitch, millionaire, and his wife. <laughs> and it's then we get our establishing character moment for Deja Thoris that doesn't quite play the way a more clichédly modern film would. She is present on the vessel that's attacking the Tharks. She falls out of the sky. John Carter rescues her. And there's a big sword fight. John Carter says, uh, get behind me. This could get dangerous. And then, of course, she has a sword. She kills a bunch of them. John Carter says, maybe I should get behind you. See, acknowledging... And then she comes up, she just wipes the blue blood off her sword onto his loincloth and says, you will let me know when it gets dangerous. But she delivers that in a way that she's sharing a joke. She's delivering that in a way of, I know you're surprised, and I know I've defied your expectations, and that's fine. She doesn't rub his nose in it. Can I just talk about Avatar again? Oh, please do. There's a moment in Avatar that I really hate... And it's that bit when the helicopter pilot, I think they're seeing the, some of the characters are seeing the planet for the first time. And of course it's lush and green and has flowers in unimaginable colors. And it's a vast quasi Amazonian planet of rainforests and nature's wonders. And the helicopter pilot goes, you should see the look on your faces. Oh, you had to be a jerk about that? Yeah, you're surprised at nice things. What a bunch of jerks you are. <laughs> that line, you will let me know when it gets dangerous, that could have been delivered in such an off-putting way. And it just established her as likable, as well as being good at fighting and smart. She is actually likable. She's capable of laughing to herself to a certain extent. Well, it's as, it's as if she recognises Carter straight away as an equal. That he has jumping skills, which obviously come in very useful later on, and she has fighting skills. So they become a kind of a, a team in that moment. So to her, to her comrade in arms, almost like a, a, a post-battle quip. She surrenders herself to the Tharks, but again, in a way that indicates she's in control of the situation. And she's immediately brushed off by them. Yeah, he, they they give her to John Carter as... Spoils. Yeah. We haven't said why she's stowed away on the, on the ship in the first place. She is supposed to marry Sab Than so that Zodonga doesn't destroy Helium the city 
And she's having none of this because Sabthan is, you know, mean and, you know, always the worst. Uh, he blows so stuff up with his blue arm string. With, with his special blue um, glove net. This is an excellent apparel website. As we describe it, it almost seems like it's not really important, the specifics. No, she's just there. She's stowed away on a ship. It gets attacked. And, uh, yeah, then that all happens. And so now she's got to spend time with with Carter. Again, there's a certain honesty about this, this. This adventure is just adventure. It's not really telling us about humanity in any fake pause. I'm just movies. They're like adverts, really adverts. No longer say buy this product because it works and is nice. It's all about buy this product. Cause that's what life's all about. Isn't it? You know, drinking white cider with your nine year old. That's what life's about. You're going to remember that when you're old and you're going to be so glad you bought our product. And movies, it's like, you know, this movie's actually saying something about what drives us all. Whereas this is just like, yeah, this is about Xena, warrior, Martian princess, Earth, Superman. He can jump really high and growl, and everybody's having a big punch-up like the end of Cannonball Run 2. <laughs> There's an honesty and openness about that. It is, it's very much a throwback to an earlier time of, of filmmaking. Andrew Stanton, in his audio commentary, does talk about how he wants it to be timeless, just like a timeless adventure yarn. And it isn't. Oh, no, he's failed wonderfully. Yeah. Because really, another thing is this story's from 1912. This is from before both world wars. And that was another reason I was worried about what I might have to justify, because there are certain ideas in here which we have seen beyond the logical conclusion of in our history, and it's not been pleasant. In what way? John Carter is Siegfried. He is a Superman. And we have seen what can happen when a culture thinks it's the Superman. And I'm not just talking about the obvious one, quite a few, just things that have happened in our history that hadn't happened then. I mean, there's the whole colonial view of things, but I think our view of 19th century imperialism and some of their theories are colored because they got seen through to the end in the 20th century. Might you say the same about Manifest Destiny? Yes, that too. Uh, th- that's another thing. This flashback. So there, there are these flashes back that John Carter had a wife and a daughter. And then he came home to find their little house burned down. And that was why I was surprised that this doesn't seem to have been an element of the original story. Because they don't tell us who burned the house down. No. And I thought, I think I know who we're meant to think did it and why you wouldn't want to tell us because then you'd just have to remake the searches. So I was thinking, is there a lot of anti-Indian stuff that I'm missing here? So I was then surprised that that seems to 
seems to have they were killed by plot reasons. They were killed by characterization. It was it's like sapphire and steel. They had to die, so time started the fire. Right. Or more likely, I assumed it was uh, Union soldiers. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So, so that's civil war. I just I, I just, just assumed it was, it was that. Like, it was sort of afterwards, but uh... well, the, that early part of the movie set in um, uh, 1868, and that's only about three years after the end of the war. So it could easily be Union soldiers. I thought. Oh yes, yeah. But they, they could have said that then. I I thought it was it was interesting that they just missed it out. I think it just demonstrates the sloppy writing, or the sloppy adaptation, rather, that, you know, that, that that was sort of thrown in a bit at the last minute, and they didn't you know, get the post-it notes to line up correctly. So Dejo Thoris ends up under the impression that John Carter is some kind of angel, because that's easier to believe than the preposterous notion that he's come from the planet Jarsum, which we call Earth. Well, it's it's also only at this point that Carter realizes he's not on Earth. So he does seem to think for quite a while that the Tharks are actually on Earth. So, Which is fair enough, really, for a 19th century man. Yeah, he probably thought they were Turkish or something. Well, you know, he's, he's probably, there's probably more uh, lost species literature out there for him to read than interplanetary literature for him to read. Yeah. But most of it's written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. But he hadn't written it yet, because it hadn't happened yet to his Uncle Jack. Oh, actually, there's there's a weird thing. Um, something I gleaned just from glancing at Wikipedia pages. Uh, in the books, John Carter can't really remember anything that happened to him before the age of 30. Yes, I saw that, and I, I'm not aware of it being followed up at any point. Is it? Well, there so are 11 you know? books, so... I'm almost wondering if are we if if they eventually build up to some revelation that uh, he returned to Mars rather than this was his first journey maybe maybe Professor Quatermass was right we are the Martians and we dig Bert Whedon no one digs Bert Whedon Dick, I mean from from what I gather Burroughs wrote the first book largely because he had seen some of the stories that were being printed in these magazines and he thought they were crap and that he could probably do better. I don't think he had any kind of long-term plan. So if that's something that's in the first book, then it's just some weird detail that he's thrown in that doesn't seem intended to go anywhere. Don't write me letters asking about the best of this character. <laughs> With one bound, I am free from that problem. Well, it's it's. We keep going back to Doctor Who, but like Captain Jack having two years missing from his life, which was never resolved. That he's had two years of memories erased from his time when he was a time agent, which was never explained. Yeah, get out of that, Russell T Davies. Not really, all fear with New Who, so. I forgive you. I gave I gave up three episodes in. Oh, like Lawrence Miles. He got very upset because the Charles Dickens episode he regarded as anti-immigrant propaganda because the aliens turn out to be bad. 
I kind of see the point. It was it's not so much. Well, this is clearly anti anti immigrant propaganda. But it's kind of like you, you should have thought from every aspect what this could have looked like and fixed that, and you didn't. Well, meanwhile, on the planet Barsoom, Deja thinks that Carter is a thern, a an angel messenger of their goddess. But the therns are actually the white guys in grey robes. Yes, they are the um, Matai Chang, the Mat- Matai Shang, and his uh, fellow Baldatrons. I'm making a lot of fun of bald people this week. I've nothing against bald people. It's just they're all bald. It's one th- it's one thing if your hair falls out because you're male and testosterone does that to you. It's another thing if you're bald just to make you look more like the bad guy. Yeah. And that's really the problem here. It's like all the aliens, th- th- each group of weird alien has one thing about them that's unusual. The Tharks have six arms, tusks, and a green. The therns are uh, bald and wear green robes. Wooler has a big mouth, and um, the uh, Helians and the Zodongans look the same as each other because they're, you know, white and normal, which doesn't really because reflect terribly the well. The Red Martians are having a civil war. Oh, yes, I suppose they are. But it's a civil war that's lasted for a thousand years, and it seems to have consumed all the resources on the planet, as far as I can gather. Because. The Zodongans are industrialized, like the North. Maybe um, that, that's probably not going anywhere. <laughs> Just I'll put that there and let somebody else pick it up and run with it if they so wish. They need fuel for their city to walk around with. But um, their their plan is to travel down river to the special temple. Um, and uh, investigate the the magic. Uh, things there. I kind of lost focus during that bit. They find the magic temple, which is suffused with blue light and confirms the suspicions of Dejar Thoris that there's a special blue ninth ray that's being used. And it's a thing. And she's convinced that um, John Carter comes from Jarsoom. And I don't know, I just... It, nothing clicked for me there. And also that it's... He hasn't really been transported. He's sort of been faxed. Because... Astral projection. Well, he calls it a telegram. I was just giving him what up-to-date equivalent. He's been 3D printed. It's an odd thing, isn't it? That's an odd idea. suppose it gives you a certain amount of peril. Yes, because his body's back on Earth, and if his body on Earth dies, then the copy of him running around on Mars will die. But it's not explained how he's able to overcome things like thirst. So his body is kind of suspended or frozen. So how 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 does death work then? Do you have to like, smash his head in with a hammer or something? There are 11 books. <laughs> uh, if you want to write the 12th. <laughs> Don't think there's anybody stopping you. I will. It's going to be called Pyramids of Mars. Oh. So I- I'm pretty sure some really important plot points get revealed in the temple and they just didn't stick in my brain, even after 
three watchings. Well, that's the the weird thing is that on the way there, there's sort of moments where Carter and Deja Thoris look at each other and what's you know bad movie code for starting to have feelings for each other. And she tells him about her arranged marriage to Sab Than. I was thinking, it, the audience already knows this. Why, why are we being told this again? Shouldn't shouldn't you have thought this through? It's 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 this, the sloppy scripting coming back. Pixar wouldn't stand for this, you know. No, John Lasseter would have been tearing off his Hawaiian shirt with fury. Have you seen the Good Dinosaur? No, I haven't. Is it good? No, neither have I, because it's a film that was endlessly reworked, and it was clearly going to be terrible. Oh, so it never happened. There's just so many movies that I haven't seen. Well, it was it was postponed by about a year and a half because they couldn't get the script to work. The last movie I watched before watching John Carter again for this podcast was Bluebeard with Richard Burton. Was that when it first came out? That gives you an idea. No. It <laughs> <laughs> gives you an idea of my average movie diet. Oh, and um, Night Train to Munich. Is that the one with Morecambe and Wise? No, that's Night Train to Murder, which is not as bad as people say it is. It's not great, it's not classic Morkman Wise, but it is not the cardboard tombstone of legend. Now, Night Train to Munich is uh, Rex Harrison versus the Nazis. That's hardly a fair fight. If they're not careful, he'll sing at them. He he does actually sing, and I'm trying to work out if it's him singing, because it does sound like his voice hitting notes. It's not notes. him singing. It's not him singing. No, it, it, but it, it does sound like what Rex Harrison would sound like if he could sing. I don't, and of course, a movie of that age, you don't really have Datron who did the dubbing. Oh, it's probably Marley Nixon again. So I'm completely lost in the film now because we've been given important plot information, but it's managed to push a lot of what I have absorbed so far out of my head. So we've just really established, right, Dominic West... Dominic West wants to control all of Mars. He's going to arrange a marriage with Deja Thoris, Princess of Helium. She's not keen on that because he's not very nice. So she runs away, gets uh, meets up with uh, John Carter, and impressed by his magic jumping powers, she wants him to help her fight for the city of Helium and defeat the evil Zodongans. And now they're in the magic temple, where they've figured out that he's from Earth, and Matai Shang, who's the evil uh, robed guy with mystical powers who's controlling Sab Than, he's realised this, and he's sent in a bunch of other more primitive, nasty Tharks to make short work of everybody. This movie could have done without the Therns. The Therns really should have turned up right at the end, saying, Ah... But where did Dominic West get his blue armstring from? We gave it to him and come and see John Carter too to find out how we fit in. I think they confused matters. I think they were maybe put in there to clarify matters, but... I think they have been put in there to clarify matters. Firstly, you never, ever make a film assuming you'll get a sequel because you won't get one. Secondly, Dominic West's character is so flat and nothing he has no motivation other than wanting to rule the world. He has no depth or personality of any kind whatsoever. So the fact that he's being controlled by these higher beings helps because it makes him 
look as if he's just really easy to manipulate because the only thing he wants is power. So they can just give them this like ma- magic, uh, you know, bag you get oranges in to put over his hand that fires special beams at people. So that I think makes more sense because these higher beings have cr- control, but all they're interested in is control. But it leaves Dominic West's character sort of dangling, and I think it just should have started with him telling his people in some hand wavy way that he has harnessed the power of the ninth ray and just make him the big bad. I think putting a post credit scene is now fairly standard for, with a sequel hook, even for movies that don't have sequels. So I think that's fine. I just think, or start with the therns. Don't start with Dominic West, then the therns, then sometimes we're meant to be focused on him and then sometimes we're meant to be focused on the therns it it spreads the villainy too thin i think though you need to have a physical and intellectual threat and in this movie sabthan is not an intellectual threat he's basically just a thug and the therns aren't a physical threat because they don't really do anything very much physically Occasionally, they ha- they sort of wave knives around, but they don't actually do very much. So, if if they were going to make Sab Than more of a rounded character, making the intellectual threat as well, that would then reduce the impact at the end of him being controlled by the Therns, because they think, well, he's pretty sharp. How come these characters are so easily able to manipulate him? We give him, we have somebody that he keeps consulting. Like, we think it's just his prime minister, just the guy he leans on. And maybe then as the movie progresses, we realize this guy is the Eminence Gris. Ah, the vizier, the power behind the throne. Yes. But we've at least had half the movie focused on a principal villain to keep our attention, whereas... We know that the villain's not really the villain. We know that the villain is the tool of the villains. And so John Carter and Dejah Thoris and everybody's worried about somebody we know isn't really that important. But he's still the physical threat of the movie. And it splits our attention. But he he is the weapon. Yes, you're right. He He is the one with his finger on the trigger. But yeah, if, if the part of the movie had been sort of exploring, it's I think it just comes I think comes down to Sabthan's a really flat character. If you were to sort of spend more time on him, make him a bit more rounded, look into his surroundings and his behaviour more, then you could have had that that idea of the uh, the uh, advisor with his hand on his shoulder saying oh, I think you should try this new weapon that we've found. There's this moment when the third receives warning that Carter and Deja have gone to the temple and the third goes, I'm already there. That's a nice little visual. I think it's, I think it's a hard edit, but it's just a nice little visual conceit. And it's- but I'm thinking to beef up 
sad sex part, we actually have him be brought the news, and he looks at our Eminence Gris character, who says, I'm on it, I'm already there, or something like that. But it's it's like we know that this is peril to the person we're thinking of as the primary villain. It's just the movie keeps saying, don't worry about Dominic West, he's not really the important part here. And then we cut back to our heroes going, what are we going to do about Dominic West? Yeah, they're, they're not giving him enough weight as the physical threat. Yes. The, mo- the movie... See, that the film is ahead of its own characters. Maybe that's the problem with the film, that we need to stay focused on Carter. We discover the world of Barsoom through his eyes. We see the threats to the Tharks and to the Helians through his eyes. So as far as we're aware, um, Sad Than is the big villain. He's the guy with all the power. He's the, he's the threat. But we then see that Sad Than has this advisor who's always by his side and always seems to be all over the place. Wherever there's something wicked going on, he's always there. And then we have could have the reveal that he's being controlled. Maybe, I mean, you could go right all the way along that and just make Sephthan a, a, just a complete puppet. He's just doing and saying what they want. He's not even being manipulated. He's just like, like a glove puppet. That could work. Yes. Give him less character. Yeah, yes, completely. R- remove any character whatsoever. He's just like a meat puppet that's being controlled on strings by them. That's a way of doing it, so that they would con- he would be their proxy dictator on Mars. But that's probably too much of a digression from the original story. This is story. Part, possibly part of the problem of being made by somebody who's such a big fan of John Carter as well. It's an entire world. It's an 11-book mythology. And when you say to somebody, tell me about that entire fictional world you're into, they will start gabbling and telling you bits in the wrong order. Yeah. And that's what we're getting here. So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, this, uh, he, he was in Arizona and the Red Martians and then the Green Martians and there's a moving city and there's the Ferns as well. And, and there's the princess, but also um, there's, there's the cavalry. And There's no focus. That's the, that's the problem. I think that's the key. Don't tell me the bits you like best. Tell me the bits I need to know to get into this story. It's about a ex, well, ex-soldier. It's about a soldier from post-Civil War times who's digging for gold, but finds himself suddenly transported to Mars, where he gets involved with wars and political machinations between different factions, some savage, some sophisticated, some kindly, and some cruel. Yeah, it's better than Leslie Halliwell could manage. And that's in here, but it's in here with a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, it's it's too jumbled up, and it's not... There's no There's not enough clarity simplicity is the, is the key. If you're not able to communicate the concept of your story, I mean, I don't, no one ever had to pitch this. I think that's the problem, that it was kind of just sort of handed to Stanton. It says, oh, we know you want to do this. Here you go. He should have had to persuade people, this is what it is. It's about this. And this is why it's good. And this is why I think people will like it. And this is why it's a worthwhile investment for you. And he never had to do that. And as a result, the film doesn't have 
that focus that I think that, that they do have at Pixar because they have a different process for making the movies because they focus on getting the script right first before they do anything else. And it also makes sense though why Burroughs fans going, thank God for this movie. I went in thinking, please don't let it be too bad. And I came out thinking it was great. But if you have the investment, it pays off. But I'm just wondering if the, how much of this film could be fixed with just editing. Are there enough deleted scenes to put in to change emphasis in places? There were significant reshoots, but I don't know whether or not it was to change scenes or to add them. I think that with a... I mean, maybe you could start from scratch and do a, do a complete top-to-bottom re-edit. I'm not sure if it would come out as being too coherent. And I, to be honest, I think there are too many other problems. Some of the performance... I mean, Taylor Kitsch is just not interesting or charismatic enough to carry the character. Um, but I think it could have been salvaged if it had been taken away from him. But I don't like it when studios take movies away from directors to improve them, in inverted commas, because they almost always make them worse. Yeah, because I have to get back to the fact, I like this film. I like this film. When I'm looking at it critically, I can find all kinds of places where it fails and all kinds of places where it succeeds. But just putting the film on and sitting down and turning my eyes and ears towards it, I like it. I have no ill feeling towards it. I've certainly, I mean, talking about Avatar earlier, I think Avatar is a terrible movie. This is certainly nowhere near as bad as Avatar. It's relatively polished. It has a certain style, a certain humour to it, which is refreshing. It's honest. It knows how deep or shallow it is. Yeah, it's, it's trying to be a straightforward yarn. And that's fine. It 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 doesn't manage to overcome its problems. I think though that's I think because it's so lightweight. If it had been if if it was something that had been aiming more aiming deeper, but still had the same problems, I wouldn't have. I'd probably enjoy it more because I think well it's 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 reaching a lot further, and it's re- it's really trying to grasp for something impressive here it's just trying to be a yarn and it's struggling to do that but it's it could have been a lot worse it could have been an awful lot worse but i'm not going to keep my copy of the dvd and it doesn't deserve to be the famous bomb that caused people to quit their jobs oh they didn't quit (laughs) well (laughs) they wasn't um rich quit in scare quotes it was um, Rich Russell, I think, was the president of production. He 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 didn't quit. He was separated from his job. It had it, the production started before he came in, but he could have turned it around, or he could have put a cap on the budget, and he didn't. Yeah, but I still think most of its problems at the box office were marketing. Yes, because the marketing is so badly thought out. They again. It's it's focusing on what what is this? What is this at its core? How do you sell this? 
and then not even thinking about that. No, we'll just have a poster with the name of the movie on. That's that's all we need. Everyone knows John Carter. He's the guy from ER. We'll have a trailer where they're playing Led Zeppelin. Why? Because that's what Andrew Stanton wants, because he hasn't really thought it through in any detail. The trailers are terrible. They they just look completely generic and boring. And they do the film. I mean, even even with my not entirely complimentary view of the movie, I think it, they do the movie a disservice by making it just look like crap. And it's not yeah, crap. I haven't seen any of the trailers, which is odd because I should have stumbled across a trailer in the run-up to the film being released. Didn't see one on TV or online. Well, I looked them up earlier today, and I don't remember seeing them at the time either. But I do remember seeing those billboards everywhere. I saw the posters, but that's partially because one of the cinemas I tend to go to is also connected to things. It's 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 often a place that they show previews. I've only seen two previews myself, but li- living in this part of California is pretty good for getting movie buzz simply by uh, going around and looking what billboards are around. And that was where the first poster I saw was JCM. And I was like, that's a poster for John Carter. I, I, I've got to see John Carter because otherwise I'm going to see it soon. It's a bit like when I went to see Hugo. I saw the trailer for Hugo and I said to my wife, I said, we have to see that the weekend it's released because the next weekend probably won't be here. Turned out I was wrong. It's like, just look at how much early 20th century whimsy they've stuffed this with. That's going to die. Yeah, it's a children's film about Georges Méliès. Come along, kids. Let's watch something about a a man's tragic failed career. Actually, I knew some children who really enjoyed that film. And... (laughs) I knew children who were impressed that I'd met Georges Méliès' great-granddaughter. Hey, that's rare. That is quite impressive, though. And who very loudly declared me to be a fan of Méliès. <laughs> uh, there were two. Sh- they were showing his shorts twice uh, at Pictureville Cinema in Bradford. Once, just in French, because of course these films are made to have a narration, and then in French with translation. And I had the front row center seat both times. And she noticed that I was there the second time. And afterwards, it's like, will you sign my book about Georges Méliès? Ah, I saw you there. And I said, this one, he loves Méliès. So, I mean, then, then again, maybe there is another principle in John Carter, which is make steampunk and die. Oh, yeah. John Carter kind of sidesteps that by having, you know, proper solar-powered flying machines. That, that the whole Star Warsness in there, but it it does seem that if you let too much nineteenth-century into your science fiction, you're going to cost somebody a fortune. Yeah, like Wild Wild West. Wild Wild West was wasn't didn't Jonah Hex have like steampunk elements? League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yes, yes, you're right. Jonah Hex is one of the lowest-grossing DC movies. 
And there have been some really, really awful DC movies. There's a scene in Jonah Hex where he, it's set in the, just for the sake of the, the listener, it's set in the Wild West and it's about a guy who's got a messed up face and he can bring corpses back to life by grabbing them and he fights fighting uh, John Malkovich who wants to destroy Washington with a magic ball. And there's a scene where he goes to a, it's an underground fighting ring where the best boxer in the West is fighting a snake man. And the fact that this movie has monsters in it all of a sudden is never referred to again. It's like that bit in The Passion of the Christ where uh, Judas is menaced by a Morlock in the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, yeah this, this version of the Christ story has a monster in it. But we're not going to mention it again. We're just going to assume that you, ne- you read that version of the Bible that was crossbred with the time machine. Are we going to talk about the rest of this film? Or do you think we've actually made out our case of its weaknesses and strengths? Because I think its weaknesses and strengths do not change throughout the second <laughs> half of the film. Somebody who's downloaded this without watching the film, instead of watching the film. Well, they're getting their money's worth. We can we can leave them something, or you know, we can also trip them up. They're trying to do the bluffer's guide to John Carter. Oh, don't come looking to us. Oh, that's what Wikipedia's for. We're for the, the critical insight and the, uh, the intellectual discourse. That's why we did Superman 4. Because on the TV right now, Deja Thoris is getting ready for her unwanted wedding. Well, before that, of course, we've got um, the big battle scene where John Carter fights all the uh, barbarian Tharks whilst having flashbacks to his dead wife. And he kills like a hundred of them really quickly so he's um it's in the heat of battle but he's basically a mass murderer suddenly and and there's a little bit that's kind of glossed over where you see that he's still wearing his wedding ring yes they did the focus on that earlier when he's been imprisoned by breaking bad it's like he's wearing two wedding rings yes he's wearing his wife's as well as his own that's an interesting little detail Again, it, it's it's a gateway to fleshing him out a bit more as an interesting person, but no. That's 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 enough. We don't need more than that. But as as Deja Thoris is getting ready for her wedding and she's in this skimpy to us but actually overdressed as far as the book is concerned outfit. It was a slight sense of, right, you have had your 21st century version of Deja Thoris, and now we return you to Edgar Rice Burroughs' Deja Thoris already in progress. She's she's done her fighting. She'll do some more fighting, but let's get back to the princess in distress. And um, Carter's there as well. He's being held in the, uh, the city. Because... Um, Sab Than has come to a deal with uh, Kiaran Hines, and um, the marriage is going to go ahead anyway. So they've basically said, oh yeah, let's go on. And uh, James Purefoy suddenly appears as uh, someone's friend, and he helps John Carter escape. And I like that bit. I do like how John Carter t- t- does not pick up. You say, take, 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 take me hostage. I was just, just, just steal my sword and take me hostage. He just did <laughs> He just does cleave on little in uh, placing saddles. <laughs> it's holding his own sword against him. Get, hey, get back, he's got a sword. <laughs> and then he starts fighting off the other guards and holding the sword against his throat at the same time, which <laughs> it's 
and then run runs runs ahead of Carter and just into another room and says, "There's a crazy man with a sword." <laughs> he's a great character. He's he's he's, he's one step ahead. Yeah, he, we we should, there should be more of him. He's sort of the uh, the you know the the guard captain type character, who's a little bit of a swashbuckler. Yeah, he's good fun. But uh, he's intercepted by Matai Shang, who explains, "Oh yes, we're 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 in charge, and we do what we want." Where the League of Shadows from Batman begins. Yeah, basically, oh, civilizations rise and fall, and we just push it this way and that. Yes, he's go- and he's going to be killed by them, but then he's rescued by Willa the dog monster, who bites Mark Strong. <laughs> this is the thing. It's it's. And he points it out. John Carter does point it out. It's not like a plot hole. He does this after being told the therns are immortal. It's like you're not immortal. I shot one of you. <laughs> yeah, they're immortal, but they're not invulnerable. That's the that's the hilarious thing. It's it it's it does keep undercutting what could have been the pomposity with its humor, and it does make it much more palatable than I think it could have been. Like Avatar, which is so painfully earnest. I'm just I'm just thinking about the third plan for the solar system and they're looking and it's like well Mars has walking cities and solar powered flying machines um it's quite advanced now earth is much much less advanced they got musket balls so <laughs> we better steer clear mate they got machine guns. Those are pretty yeah. dangerous. I mean, if one bullet can knock one down, a machine gun will be the death of them. I'm thinking a baseball bat with a nail through it. <laughs> <laughs> These guys, if you came up behind them. Well, that, actually, it's funny you should mention that because we're getting towards the escape from New York scene where um, uh, Carter escapes back to the Tharks he's imprisoned and discovers that Tars Tharkas has also been imprisoned and they're all going to be dragged out into the big arena to be eaten by the big white apes. But um, Carter fights back. He jumps around a bit. Um, he brains one of the apes. Um, but the, another one lands on him and he cuts his way out through it the top of its head. And when the evil Thark uh, takes up his challenge, he leaps into the arena Carter leaps the other way and chops off his head. In I love how anticlimactic that is. It's almost Pythonesque, but it's just, yeah. I'm not yeah, even sure of... it's it's a mistake or an oversight. It it I like it so well. I think they knew exactly what they were doing at that point. So now, Carter and Tars Tharkas are going to lead the Tharks to war and take on the Zodongans. So they attack Zodonga. And there's no one there <laughs> because they've all gone to Helium again, for the wedding. Slap on the back of the head for, for John Carter. <laughs> Stucker smacks him in the head. That was the one thing that I really remembered from seeing it in the cinema. They, they go to the wrong place and then the hero gets a punch in the face from his ally for doing something stupid. But so they, they arrive at Helium and there's a big battle and um, Matai Shang manages to escape at the last minute. 
Sab Fan is killed by them by making the, the string go all over his head, and then his head. Oh, actually, can we can we mention another nice bit, which is um, John Carter knows he has to crash the wedding, and the Tharks won't come with him because flying machines are involved, and Tharks don't fly. So Carter just gets on this flying machine himself and flies off. And Sola looks at her father and just goes, mm. <laughs> "It's very old." Now look what you've done. That's. <laughs> That's a fine kettle of bling-dongs you've got pickled <laughs> me in. And um, because they're about to have a wedding, of course, they've got all the guests there. They've got the cake ready. They have to have a wedding now. So Carter proposes to Dejah Thoris. And that proposal scene was added after a test screening because they, they originally they went straight from the end of the battle to them getting married with nothing in between. Right. And apparently all the women in the test screening said, no, we want him to say that he loves her, which is fair enough. Quite right, women. Is, well, it, it, they should actually have proper connecting tissue between these scenes rather than just saying, oh, yeah, he's known her for like two days. And now they're getting married. And he's also managed to get over his dead wife. To, to be honest, she's just, I think it should just really come down to uh, that. You will tell me when it gets dangerous, it's like, you know. You were so likable that put down. Uh, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. That's fine. If they could bring back that line and kind of turn it around, that would have been a nice little flourish to finish that off. And it would have sort of just cemented the connection between the two of them. It's their wedding night, and he's on the balcony looking out over his new land of Barsoom that he's apparently going to be ruling someday and patting the dog, when uh, a guard comes over and says, oh, hello, thanks very much for all you've done. But then he turns into Mark Strong and sends him back to Earth. And he wakes up in a cave covered in like a, a year's worth of dust. The skeleton of uh, General Breaking Bad is looking at him. So he's just, uh, just waited there to die, and then he died. So I felt quite bad for him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... Why are you getting up and getting some help? I'm bleeding to death. Well, no, I mean, you can, you can at least see the car's just like flop. So he's just going to assume that John Carter's died. I'm pretty sure that by day two, he'd realise that he's not taking a long nap. <laughs> so he's trapped back on Earth again. And then we move into the last hour <laughs> of the film. <laughs> this is, it's, it's five more minutes. But, but it's, it's then, as Edgar reads in voiceover, he says, oh, so I used the, the gold in the cave to make my fortune, and I searched the world for another Tharn amulet so that I could travel back to Mars, and eventually I found one. And then I set all this up I, uh, so that I could travel back. And But you have to make sure the Tharns haven't got to my Earth body. So he goes off and runs off to the, uh, the special mausoleum that's um, in the grounds of the house pushes the door open that's already ajar and inside it's empty just as a man comes up behind him with a weird blue knife and someone shoots him in the back and it's john carter and the man turns back into matai shang the whole thing was a trap to get his hands on an amulet because he didn't really have one after all and then he tells uh edgar to go and write a book or something i don't like the way he delivers that line take up a cause write a book those aren't the same thing but it's just, it's just so high-handed. God, 
it's, it's, it's why I hate being middle-aged. Because when I was young, everybody middle-aged talked down to me. Take up a cause, write a book. Get your own house in order. Let me live my life. Funny thing is, now that I'm gradually drifting towards that point in my life, all the young people I know are actually doing something with their lives, and I'm doing bugger all. So I feel like they should they're going to start lecturing me about what I'm doing wrong. Yes, there is there is also that problem. That was also another thing I hated when I was young: young people lecturing. I just hated lecturers, really. <laughs> is that why you burned down that university? You know the kind, though. The the mission to explain. Hi, let me tell you about how I've got my life together and how you could be just like me. Get bent. <laughs> That's every American television commercial, though, isn't it? Yes. Also, we get a lot of them in Britain, because uh, some channels don't start broadcasting until about 8 o'clock. So over breakfast, I end up seeing a lot of these infomercials for sit-up machines, and everyone in them looks weirdly muscly. And I don't want to see that first thing in the morning while I'm trying to eat my muesli. So overall, you like John Carter? Yes. Just because it skips over a lot of modern cliches, sometimes willfully, sometimes just because it's not in the source material and it's sticking so close to its source material where it can. It looks very pretty. Yes, I like the, the staging. Very good. Yes, the editing and the direction are generally very good, and I think that just speaks of Stanton's own experience. I have reservations about the script and the plotting. I do think that it is, it's cliched in some places, but I think that's largely because it set the trend for, the, for these ideas, that it's been superseded by its own antecedents and it ha and they weren't able to properly format it in a way that felt fresh and new in the way that it must have done when the book first came out i think that's its biggest flaw but there is enough in it that's original in its own way or quite charming again there was a nice sort of thrilling back to basics in places Yes. For me as well. It's just, I don't, it's like, you're just sitting unaware in some place where they're playing mu music, and then Tutti Fruity by Little Richard comes on. <laughs> and in the right circumstances, it's a splash of cold water in the face. Core! Here's how they did it perfectly in the old days. Yes. It's a film that I wouldn't recommend to everyone, but... It's certainly one that I think people with a liking for science fiction adventure or this kind of more science fantasy, if they've seen that kind of thing before and enjoyed it, if they've seen Avatar and enjoyed it, I'd say, well, give John Carter a go because that might be right up your street and it's not as terrible as Avatar is. It it did not deserve its fit. No, I mean, it, it, it was a, a financial disaster. And Disney lost something like $200 million on it overall. And it cost the president of production, or whatever his job title was, his job. But, you know, no matter how good the film was, you can't change box office receipts. I think it's the failures of the marketing, the failures of internal mechanisms at Disney that meant that the film didn't have proper oversight. Those are the reasons the movie was a financial disaster. Just realised another place I didn't really see any John Carter stuff. 
Disneyland. Yes. Because you live across the road from Disneyland, don't you? I live in Disneyland, yes. <laughs> That's why you take your dog for a walk. I do remember th- I do remember the John Carter posters in downtown Disney, which is not part of it's not part of the theme park, it's just the shops that basically put a shopping centre that's way overpriced nearby. And there's a cinema there. And that wasn't but, showing it. Uh no, I think that's where I went to see it. Oh right. But you can usually tell which ones they're giving a heavy push to. Like Inside Out had a big display outside that you were meant to take selfies in front of. John Carter, it was just posters. Well, I think that's it does show the sort of the direction that Disney's wound up going in because they've now divided their live action movies into specific silos so that they only f- follow certain creative routes. So it's Star Wars, uh, Marvel, Pixar, existing franchises, and live action remakes if they're in animated movies. They're not doing anything else. So I think it's possible that John Carter and I think it was the following year, um, The Lone Ranger. (laughs) I didn't go and see that. I I saw the posters. It had Stinker written all over it as far as I was concerned. Uh, And I still haven't seen it. Um, That also a huge disaster. I think Disney decided, well, it's not worth us taking these kinds of risks anymore. We'll invest in stuff that we know works so we will buy star wars we'll buy marvel and sooner or later they're going to do another indiana jones actually they know of course they are doing another indiana jones i've never seen the indiana jones films and i know i i know now that i have to uh get around to it because there's a lot of british actors of things that i watch in so i really must get around to seeing that ronald lacy's in it ronald lacy's terrific he's really really terrific paul freeman is in the first one as well um John Rhys Davies, of course. Which one has Michael Sheard? The third one. All oh, right, so I have to watch at least three. Okay. You have to watch two. I would recommend watching the second one, which is technically a prequel. And you can definitely skip The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Because I've, as I've described to others, it's the worst Indiana Jones movie, although it's still a lot better than anything that's than most things pretending to be Indiana Jones, just <laughs> because it's still got those major elements. It's still got Harrison Ford in it. It's still got a very high standard of production. Yeah, Lost Crusade's got you know, Sean Connery, Julian Glover, uh, Harrison Ford doing a Scottish accent, Michael Sheard as Hitler. It's really good. But yeah, the original three are, I think, very much worth seeing. And the, and the first Ghostbusters. It's just um, a while ago I rewatched Star Wars uh, for, <laughs> I, th- I think, the second time, which I think is the most times anybody's ever watched Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I think and right. uh, I w- rewatched it with my wife, who has had uh, nearly seven years of being made to watch most of the things that released on DVD by network. And Star Wars becomes a different film after that. And so uh, the biggest cheer when we were watching Star Wars, was Don Henderson. <laughs> Yay, Bullman! Bless you, Schofield's got no facial hair. That's creepy. I know, it is, isn't it? And um, Dennis Lawson. And uh, the guy from the Paul Merton, the series sketch about the Encyclopedia of Chickens. 
I'm not as much of a Paul Merton enthusiast as you might expect. Well, he's the guy the guy from the Encyclopedia of Chicken Sketches in Star Wars. So that sort of raises it up a notch for me. Well, in that case, it sounds like Star Wars might be the sort of film that we cover in uh, Cinema Limbo. I mean, I've heard of it. It sounds quite entertaining. It seems to have all sorts of interesting British actors in. I've... Well, do you, do you want to hear my story about my rewatching of Star Wars? Because this is this has made some people's jaws drop. You know the bit when Obi Wan tells Luke about his father. Yes. Most of the way through that speech, I'd forgotten who that guy is. So I got this little picture in my mind of Obi Wan and Luke's father having adventures together. And in my mind, Luke's father looked like Richard Green from Robin Hood. <laughs> and then towards the end, it's like, oh, wait, no, hang on a minute. <laughs> no, no, we actually find out who his father is eventually. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's how little I have uh, an emotional connection with Star Wars. Well, so I was watching it in a way that it hadn't really been watched since 1980-something. I think that's the best way to watch it. That way, every time it's a new delightful surprise. And I once tried to uh, remember a line from Star Wars and got it mixed up with a line from Kind Hearts and Coronets. <laughs> a lightsaber, an elegant weapon of a more civilized time, all of the exuberance of Chaucer without any of the concomitant crudities of the period. <laughs> so, John Carter, enjoyable film. Yes, within, within limits. Well, thank you very much for your time. Do you have any other suggestions of films to inflict on me? I don't think there are any films that I like that are regarded as disasters. Well, I don't just do disasters, you know. Oh, what else do you uh, do? Anything that's sort of vaguely obscure or... Oh, boy! <laughs> yeah, but not in your way obscure. Not anything that's going to impinge on one of your fine podcasts, also on the Podnose Network... The Sitcom Club and Jeff Cakes for Proust. What can you tell me about those? Well, sometime around about the time this podcast is going out, uh, the Sitcom Club will be taking looks at the recent BBC sitcom season. We're looking at the revivals and the restagings of the lost sitcom episodes. Those will be two separate podcasts. And Jeff Cakes for Proust is currently working on... A look at a game show that was hugely successful in the US, Australia and the UK and which has already been brought back in one of those markets is about to be brought back in another of those markets. But I can't give you a deadline for when that one will be ready because we're taking a very in-depth look and we're calling in the help of experts. Well, in that case, I look forward to your next audio missive. Thanks to Tilt for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is on iTunes, with almost two dozen episodes available, so please do subscribe, download and review before the bulldoze get you. However, until next time, remember, I'll let you know when it gets dangerous. Goodbye. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network, Come and visit us at www.podnose.com.
The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. <laughs>